Okay, we got new batteries, Lord willing, that's us. Praise God. Welcome, everyone. It is that time of the year. It's election time. And uh, so afterwards, like I said, we'll, we'll be, uh, we will be having the annual meeting. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that one guy can uh, not go so long. We'll keep it short. Um, for those who weren't here earlier, uh, Miss Tracy asked if she could get some help and some extra hands uh, moving afterwards, if anybody has the, uh, the time to do that. Um, we helped her last week, and it went pretty well. So if anybody uh, would like to help um, after we're done with the meeting, then we'll... Um, it's, uh, I guess she's got another place, storage unit in Lehigh, so we'll go there and uh, help her move, um, those of us who can make it. So um, anyways, uh, <clears throat> it is a, uh, uh, an awesome time of the year. Um, Seasons are changing, leaves are starting to change, there's uh, uh, things that are happening in the world that are changing uh, rapidly, and it's kind of crazy. <clears throat> and one of the things that I keep observing is the uh, redefinitions of everything, and even the redefining of, of who God is and what He stands for. And when people who are um, standing on the Word of God faithfully, are deemed as somehow the ones who are in the wrong and the ones who are doing what is uh, evil. We are called evil because we believe what the Word says and we don't deviate from it. And we're not willing to bend to the uh, whims of the world. And so we're deemed those, those, those types of things and, and uh, <clears throat> we're called all kinds of names. And and the unbelievers really don't know who God is, and, and in so many different ways they, they mock God. Um, earlier today, as I was praising God um, and uh, asking for you guys to rejoice with me that God provided for my son in such a marvelous and amazing way, um, <clears throat> so that his uh, tuition is covered um, through this uh, fellowship and, or through the scholarship. And the cool thing is, is part of that scholarship is... Uh, uh, one of the um, one of the only um, things that they asked in return was that he serve in a rural place as he's doing his internships and doing some of these things as he gets started once he's graduated. And it just turns out that where he lives in Logan in that area, they consider that rural. So he can just serve right there where he goes back home and he's fulfilled part of his deal. So God is really awesome that way in, in how he works things out. And um, you may be asking, well, what's the, what's the, uh, you know, the connection there between how I opened and what I just said? Well, the connection is when God, uh, we have a God, and uh, when God who sees and hears and acts, it's, uh, it's the God that we've come to know. And there's so many people that don't know who God is. Um, there's so many people that have an idea of, of they have an idea in their head of, what God should be. And I can't tell you the, how many different uh, conversations that I've had on social sites um, that just, you know, you have to tell them, you know, I, I don't know what God you're talking about because that's not the God of the Bible. That's a God that you're, you've created in your own mind. He's a God of your imagination. And that's all He is. He's a figment of your imagination. Because that's not the God of the Bible. You're trying to say that it is, but it is definitely not. 
And it's the same way when we are here in Isaiah 37, we're uh, going to read the, the God's response. When God sees, when God hears, and when God acts. Um, God has been challenged by the non-believer, by the pagan. Um, he's been uh, challenged by the pagan king and the, his messengers and, and the people have been threatened. And on the other hand, you're going to have this contrast of a godly king. A king who knows who God is. A king who fears God. And a king who is intimately um, in a relationship with God. It's an amazing thing, the differences. And so when we see the, the, the threats that have come in, in this story that's recorded for us, we see what, uh, what, how the king has responded, and we see the way that he, that he went, and it's because of who he knows God is, who he's come to know who God is, and how he's come to know who God is. And he trusts God, and he's in a great place, and he's, he, uh, the, the challenge has been made. The, in my opinion, it was a little bit of a trap that was set, and uh, so the, the prideful arrogance that poured out um, was recorded. And even so much so that in the history, you, if you remember the, the historical background of this story, the Assyrians are they're threatening to come. And they're going to be all around the city and they're going to take it over. And they've said, what God can stop us? You know, all these other gods of all the other people, because remember in that area, they all had idols. They, they were idolatrous peoples in those areas, in those regions of the world at that time. And they're still, it's still alive and well today. Again, that's what I was talking about earlier. People create this image of God in their own mind. And uh, that's really what they do. They make God in their image, not the other way around. <clears throat> and so uh, here you have the same kind of a deal that's been working out. And so uh, we're going to pick up in, in chapter uh, 37 of Isaiah, verses 21 through 38. It's a pretty good chunk, but there's a lot of stuff. It was hard to stop last week. Um, so with the time that's allotted, I'm going to just blaze through this reading real quick, and then we'll go back and pick up some, uh, some of the pieces. Um, starting in verse 21, the last thing, well, actually in verse 20, um, Hezekiah has made his prayer. He's presented everything on paper. He brought it into the temple. He brought it before God, believing. He did it by faith, believing that God could see. And in verse 20, he says, And now, O Lord God, our God, deliver us from his hand, and all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, Lord, Yahweh, art God. So he's ended his prayer, and he says, Make yourself known. Do this so that all the people around will know that you are the only God that there is. He's glorifying God. He's lifting up his name, just like that song we say, um, <clears throat> that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other. Then God responds, and he does so through his, through his prophet. He says in verse, uh, verse 21, Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent word to Hezekiah. And it seems almost instantaneous in the reading. Um, Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that Yahweh has spoken against him. 
So this king got the uh, attention of God, and, he's, and this is how God expressed, this is what he expressed to Isaiah. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Through your servants you have reproached Yahweh, or the Lord, Adonai in, in actual actuality here. And you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountain, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses. And I will go to its highest peak, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters. And with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Then you have a shift. Again, God speaking directly. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of a field and the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me, and because of your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose, my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Then this shall be the sign for you. You shall eat this year what grows of itself, in the second year what springs forth from the same, and in the third year sow, reap, plant, vineyards, and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts shall perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come to this city, or shoot an arrow there. Neither shall he come before it, it with a shield, nor throw up a mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return. And he shall not come to this city, declares Yahweh. For I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. Then this famous non-battle battle took place. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of, Assyria, of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home, and lived at Nineveh. And it came about as he worshipped in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adremelech and Shariser, his sons, killed him with a sword. And they escaped into the land of 
Ararat, or Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what has been recorded through time. Thank you that we can see that you are a God who is living. That you are a God who sees and hears and acts. We don't always know and are seldom satisfied with your timing. But we thank you. That you are the one who shows yourself who is in control. And you do as you please. And what you say will come to pass comes to pass. You are the sovereign Lord. And that's what this passage proves. Kings are nothing. Leaders and rulers are nothing. You are the king of the universe, the sovereign of the universe. There are no maverick molecules that are floating around in the universe. You're in control of all of these things and more. We don't understand how all of these things work. We just know that you are. And we thank you. That you are glorified in all of these things. We thank you that you hear prayer. We thank you that you see and that you act. For you are the living God. And you are God alone and there is no other. And we thank you that we can come to you, praise you, bless you, and thank you, and seek you. And humbly ask for what we need. Thank you, Lord, for being so kind and gracious, being so merciful and amazing. What a glorious God that you are. Open now our eyes, ears, mind, and hearts to your truth, to your word. Father, in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. So God here responds to Hezekiah's prayer. And he responds rapidly. And he says, this is what's going to take place. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in Philippians. Philippians 4, um, 6 through 8. And it reads as so, it reads thusly, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Hezekiah has seemed to grasp this long before Paul wrote this. He realized that this is what he needed. He was anxious as the king protecting his people and wanting to protect his people. And so what did he do? He went, as I said last week, he went by himself personally and he sought God on his own. But he also asks for the help of the prayers of the prophet, the one through whom God speaks. He's like, hey, if I have another asset or another person that can go to God, an intercessor... That's a good thing. King Hezekiah seems to have gotten that. So he goes and he is trusting in God by personally going to God in prayer and in supplication and making his requests known to God. And he does. He does so, so much so he believes that it will happen that he has it in writing. And he has God look at it. Look, 
Look at what he's written. Look at the things that they're threatening. Look at the uh, blasphemy with which they're speaking. He's kind of ratting the king out. And he is uh, making his request known to God. He's acknowledging that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is God alone. And that he is in charge of all creation, including all the peoples, the tribes, tongues, nations, and their kings, royalties, armies, and so forth. He also asks God that he might act on the situation. So he's not just presenting the, the uh, supplication, he supplicates. That's what supplication means. You ask God to work in a certain way. doesn't mean that he will. He'll do it his way. And he does. He supplicates God. He says, God, please help us. As he says, now, O Lord, in verse 20, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, Lord, Yahweh, art God. So he goes and he knows the circumstances. He asks God that he might act on the situation. And as another act of faith, he employs the prayers of the intercessor of Israel, the prophet Isaiah. He applies what Paul writes to us as believers, even in his ominous circumstances. Because they were ominous. There was a kingdom that was going to come. And remember, a good portion of Israel had already been captured. And been taken away. There was possibly 100,000 people that had been led away in the surrounding areas. Jerusalem was one of those places that God said, Nope, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think I'm going to let it happen. It's one of those places where God said no. And he answered the prayer and said, Look, I will, I've got this. He's not going to do this. So Isaiah gives him the answer. Thus says the Lord, in verse 21, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of uh, uh, Syria. This is the word, in verse 22, that the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. Now this is a term that is used often in the Old Testament, the virgin daughter. It's the idea that it's, it's been undefiled. Um, it hasn't been breached, and it's still in its intended state that God intended it to be. And he says that Assyria has despised Jerusalem and the people there and mocked the virgin daughter of Zion. And praise God that he's uh, saying Zion, when we, when we think about biblically the, the term Zion, what God is really referring to is that ultimate Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Ultimately, that's what it means. We will one day be in Zion. Not the Israel land there in Israel, but Zion is the new Jerusalem, ultimately, that will be what Zion is. And it'll be ours. It'll be where we belong. That's where we belong. Praise God that he's not using the term Sinai. That was where the law was introduced by Moses, through Moses. And he's not saying Sinai. That has been fulfilled. And now we have Zion to look forward to. So he says that these people have mocked. And it's never wise to mock the thing that God loves, let alone God. It says, she has shaken her head behind you, almost in derision, and the daughter of Jerusalem. It's a Hebrew literary convention that speaks of cities and people as young women. Um, 
One thing to note that uh, God is referring to Zion and not Sinai. Sinai represents the giving of the, or the delivery of the law of God in Moses. Um, you guys that were cleaning up my uh, uh, office, you might have seen a picture that I had. And there was a picture of Moses and there was a Christian, I think it's from the book, the, uh, uh, I can't even think of the name of the book, Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress. And there's a picture of these three people. There's Moses with the law, and he has the two tablets with him, trying to crush the one guy. The poor guy's just, ah. And Jesus is interceding in this picture. And he's saying, no, the law, I have fulfilled it. And that's exactly what's going on here. Zion is referring to that yet future place that will one day be enjoyed by all who are regenerate and made new, redeemed and forgiven, reconciled and restored into favor with God rather than at enmity with God because of grace. That's what he's referring to. And he's saying, you mocked this. The Assyrians had mocked it. And then he asks that question. It's a rhetorical question. Verse 23. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? We know who. The pagan, the unbeliever, the unregenerate, they don't know who God is. They have no idea. They have some inkling. But they don't know who God is. And that's the point. He's like, who do you think you're reproaching? Who do you think you're blaspheming? You don't even know. You don't fully understand or comprehend. And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel? So he says you're guilty of these things. Um, the word reproached and blasphemed are in the Hebrew. The word reproached is the word um, karaf. Karaf. And it simply means to reproach or to taunt to blaspheme, to defy, to jeopardize, to rail, to upbraid. Um, specifically when it comes to the things of God. They were taunting him. That's what God is saying, you're taunting me. It's a bad idea. Never, ever. What, is that? what does it say? Well, how did Jesus defeat the, one of the enemy in the desert? The devil. What was one of the things that he said? It is written, you shall not what? Tempt the Lord your God. You shall... You, it's a bad idea. Never do it. Don't tempt him. Um, and then the word blasphemed is the word gadoff. Gadoff. And that just simply means to revile or to blaspheme God. And that's what he had done. Um, in Galatians, it says in uh, chapter 6, verse 7 through 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The king of Assyria sowed some seed. By speaking through this messenger and these uh, words that were brought that blasphemed God, and how was God blasphemed? Well, they brought God down. They made God less than who He is. They were comparing Him to the false gods, to the demon gods of the world, of the idolaters. That's how they were blaspheming God. And God said, no, I'm not having it. God will not be mocked. God is holy. Unbelievers don't understand that. We barely understand that. We barely understand that God is holy. 
We don't fully comprehend how holy that He really is and how perfect that He is. And Paul says here in Galatians, he says, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, which is exactly what the king of Assyria had done, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Praise God for that. Um, with that being said, he says, whom, you, whom have you approached? And against whom have you raised your voice? And haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel. Then he says, through your servants you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains and to the remotest parts of Lebanon. And I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses. And I will go to the highest peaks, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters. And with the sole of, of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. He's boasting. I did all of this. There's another story that's written in the book of Daniel, where another king, a future king, from this history that we're in right now, he boasted in the same way. He was on the city walls and he looked over his city and everything that he was in charge of and he said arrogantly and boastfully, look at all of this stuff that I have done. God hears. God sees. God acts. In that case, God interceded very quickly. And he took this king, it was Nebuchadnezzar, and he basically turned him into a beast. He says, who do you think you are to say that? I'm the one who put you there. I'm the one who allowed you to do this. I'm the one who inspired you. Now because of your arrogance, you're going to pay the price. And he went for several years in this state. They pretty much had him in a pasture. And he's like eating grass like an animal. It's so weird, the story. Same thing here. This king is going to reap corruption. Why? Because of the arrogance. I did this. I did this. How does God respond? Well, he says, um, have you not heard? It's a question. He's like, that's kind of our equivalent to, are you serious? Are you serious right now? Are you being serious right now? Like, don't you understand? It's not you who did this. Because listen, listen to what God tells him through the prophet. He says, long ago I did it, even before you were born. By the way, this is one of the places where we can go, where we can see that God is, is explaining this very simple thing. God decrees things from before they happen. So he knows exactly what's going to happen because it's his plan. He does as he pleases. He does in accordance with his will. And it is according to his kind intention that he has chosen to save. In this case, he says, look, I planned it. So there's a whole different set of eyes now. The king said, I did all these things. Now God is saying, no, I did this. Long ago I did it. 
which, by the way, tells us that he knows the end, the beginning from the end, and so on and so forth. Then he says, from ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. It's like, that was my doing. I allowed you to do that. How did I allow you to do that? Verse 27, therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. So God did something in the people to make them weak. He weakened them. They were dismayed and put to shame. We read one story after another in the Old Testament. And uh, um, Miss Andrea could, could attest to that. Where God confuses the enemy. And in some cases, so much so that they turn on one another. And they kill each other. And they don't even know why. It's crazy. That's the thing that God is saying here. I dismayed them. Um, they were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field. That's kind of a funny picture. <laughs> they were like vegetables. They couldn't do anything. They were frozen. Boom. They were stuck. He says they were like vegetation of the field and of the green herb as grass. In other words, it was uh, the idea that they were, they were ripe for the picking. And I was the one that did that. I made them that way. This is another example where God is sovereign and he does indeed impose himself on the affairs of men. He providentially does so. So for those who try to say that, well, you know, God's a gentleman and he'll never impose, like, sorry. Um, he did it to a whole group of people. He did it to one city after another. And he made it so that they were ready. They were ripe for the picking. And then as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and I know you're going out. He says, not only did I do that, I know intimately who you are. I know when you wake up, I know when you go to sleep. I know before you wake up and before you go to sleep, when you're going to do that. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're going to say. This is the kind of an idiom that is used in this to express the idea that God is sovereign. So we have a God here who is displaying that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He is showing who he is. He says, I know you're sitting down, and I know you're going out, and you're coming in, and I know you're raging against me. In other words, everything that you are hiding within yourself that is not being expressed, I know. And that is rage. And it's raging against me. And then he says, because of your raging against me, here's the consequences. Now, this is a, um, one of those examples, too, as, as we go through this. Uh, don't overlook the fact that God uses, he was using Assyria as a weapon, as a judgment to the peoples around that area. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and all the other ites, Right? And it's one of those places where God sovereignly uses this king and this kingdom as a tool of judgment. But at the same time, he's holding them responsible. Let us not ever forget that. That they're responsible for the, their actions, ultimately. Because sometimes we get challenged as people who believe in sovereign election. Sometimes we get challenged about that. 
Well, if God is the one that's making them, it's like, well, no, God's not moving them around like a puppet on a, on a chessboard or anything like that, or a pawn or something like that. God is allowing them to operate within their limited free will. They have free will. They make choices. God's using them as weapons, and that's what He's doing, but He's also holding them accountable. So when they blaspheme God, He says, uh-uh, no, you're going to get more than a spanking. And I want you to think about this, the king of, of Assyria. To this day, he is suffering the consequences of his arrogance and his pride. He is suffering right now eternal contempt, and it hasn't even begun. I want you to think about that. When God is passing this judgment on this king, he's saying, this is what's going to happen. And as we're going to see he, uh, um, in history, it tells us when the events took place. That is uh, a little bit further. So let's keep on reading. He says, Because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. Now why is that written here? Why is God saying that? If you go into uh, the interweb and you type in Assyria and you type in its histories, you know they actually have statues? They have things that are made up about their wars and some of the things that they did. And guess what one of the things that they would do to the people that they captured? That's right, they would put hooks in their nose and in their lips. And they would do it particularly with the royalty and with the higher ups, the elites. And they would be on display as they were dragged into the kingdom of the conquering king. And so God says... You guys use hooks? I'm going to put a hook in your nose, in your lip. That's why this is in here. God is reminding him, not only am I God and I'm going to do this, I'm going to use your own cruelty against you. And this is what I'm doing. Now he's saying this figuratively, but he's doing it spiritually. He's saying at the same time, this is what's going to happen. I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. And I will turn you back by the way which you came. So he's saying, I'm going to lead you and guide you. You're going to be the horse, and I'm going to tell you which way to go, and you're going to have to go. Verse 30, he says, Then this shall be a sign for you. You shall eat this. He suddenly shifts. He's not talking to the, uh, uh, to the king of Assyria anymore. Now he's talking to his people. And he's saying simply this, saying, This shall be the sign for you. And this is important. Because God wants His people to know that not only am I saying this and I'm going to do this, I'm going to give you a sign. Not to seek a sign, but He says, this is what I'm going to do so that you'll know that I'm achieving what I said I would achieve. And if you remember from Isaiah 7, 14, He gave a sign in that passage when He was talking to another king. He said in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's also a, a, the first place where God says this is in Exodus 3.12. In Exodus 3.12 is the story of Moses when he goes to the burning bush and God says as uh, Moses is protesting, Hey God, um, who shall I say is sending me? Because they're going to ask. 
I'm paraphrasing. And God says, tell them that I am. I am that I am has sent you. They will believe you. He says, this is a sign. This is a sign that you'll know and they will know that you are from me, that I sent you as an intercessor and you're the one instrument that I'm going to speak through. He says, this is a sign. You will go out three days from Egypt and you will worship me. That's the sign. When you see this happen, when this comes to pass, you'll know, the people will know that you're my instrument and I'm going to use you. God wants people, his people, to know what he says will come to pass. He wants us to know and be sure of that. What is the sign that he has saved you? The fact that your life has turned from the things of the world to the things of God. The very fact that you're even interested is a sign. The very fact that you believe that Jesus died on the cross and that Jesus is the Son of God and that He came and gave His life in exchange for yours, that is the sign. And the fact that you, are, you have spiritual eyes when you read Scripture, you're not just reading Scripture, you are also being made alive in it. It makes sense to you because it's spiritual and it's spiritually discerned. These are part of the signs that go along with the believer. And he says this, this will be a sign for you. You shall eat this year what grows of itself. So the crops that have been planted, you're going to eat that. And in the second year, what springs from the same. And in the third year, sow, reap, plant the vineyards and eat their fruit. So the second year, they're still going to be able to eat off of what they produced the first year. And then in the third year, they're actually going to be able to plant. In other words, there's not going to be a threat, at least not for now. There's a threat coming, but it's not yet. And then he says, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upwards. God always has a remnant. He will always have a remnant. There will never be a time, as long as the earth keeps going, when there aren't believers. God will always have a remnant. Because God is the one who saves. And he always has that, um, that remnant, that uh, group of people that he has saved and that he will keep. He says, verse 32, For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and out of the Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform us. So he's saying it's not up to you. It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon God. This is what he says. I'm going to do this. Now, what does he mean that they're going to go out? For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant. Well, they're going to be judged still. Babylon, the Babylonians are in the backdrop. They're in the future. They're yet to come. And they're going to be a part of what God is going to use, another instrument of judgment. But there's going to be a remnant. And there's going to be some dastardly kings... The next one's going to be one of the worst. And then after him, a good king again. But that's for another time. That's what he means when he says that they shall go forth, the remnant. So there's going to be some survivors. Remember that there was thousands and thousands of people that have already been taken. It says in verse 33, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come to this city, or shoot an arrow there, 
neither shall he come before it with shield, nor throw up a mound against it. So historically, this is exactly what happened. The king of Assyria never came. Um, we read earlier where he heard a rumor and he went to meet another king and then um, Rabshakeh and the rest of the guys, they went and met with him where he was at and from there he was turned away. He was sent back to his city. Um, historically, um, what we're going to read here in a minute happened many years after this event. Um, and so he says, he, not only is that, he's not going to come, he's not going to shoot an arrow, he's not going to come with a shield, nor throw up a mound against it. So it's not going to be uh, one of those besiegements that's going to happen. And who's the one that's doing this? God. God is not allowing it. So he says, this is why he's not going to do it. And then in verse 34, by the way that he came, by the same, he shall return. And he shall not come to this city, declares Yahweh. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. This is God saying, I'm going to protect this city. Remember what he said earlier in Isaiah about, the, about his, uh, his uh, vineyard? Remember how he said, and I think this was around uh, uh, Isaiah 26, 25, when he talked about his vineyard. He says, I'm going to plant my vineyard. I'm going to water it. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to weed it. I'm going to cultivate it. I'm going to protect it. I'm going to do these things. This is what he's promised to do, and this is what he's doing here. It's fulfilling what he said he's going to do. I'm going to protect my remnant. My remnant is my vineyard. That is what I will protect. So he's saying that this is going to do and going to happen and going to pass because of his own sake. Not for the sake of the people. Sometimes we think about that, that you know, because of uh, God's love for us, that He'll do it for our sake. No, He does it for His name's sake. He does it because He's holy. He does it because He's righteous. He does it for His name's sake, because His name is holy, not ours. He says, I'll do it for my sake and for the, uh, for the sake of my servant David. Who's He got in mind here? Jesus. I'm doing it for his sake. He's always going to have that remnant. And then it says abruptly, he says, not only am I going to protect it, I'm going to do it by, for my sake. Uh, I will defend this city, so you're not coming to it. And then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all these things, all these were dead. This is the God who sees. This is the God who hears. This is the God who acts. God is a living God. We should actively be praying and seeking God for all of these types of things. doesn't mean that we're not going to go through stuff. We're going to go through stuff. What it does mean is that God does hear. He does see and He does act. When my son called me Thursday and told me the good news, I was overjoyed, but I'm like, did they, you know... Make a copy of the thing. Make sure that, because I don't trust men. You know, they'll, they'll take it away from you just as quickly. I said, but grab a hold of it so you got proof. We see that God does act. And I was reminded of that. And I was just so thankful. And I said, son, praise his holy name. 
He's done it. I said, and I told him, I said, in our study, we've been talking about the favor of God a lot. I said, this is the favor of God. That's all it is. It's God's favor pouring forth in your life. I said, serve Him. Seek Him. Don't let this get in the way of your worship of our God. Keep it going. But remember to humble yourself and to, you know, and surely He was. He was in disbelief too, and it was amazing. And so God says, I'm going to do this for my sake. It's His favor. It was God's favor that struck down 185,000 of these warriors. It is God's favor. That's how He protected His city. They lost all these guys, and the king of Assyria said, I'm backing up here. You know, how do you, how do you recover 185,000 people that just dropped dead in the middle of the night? How do you recover from that? Especially when God has said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to protect that for my sake, for my servant David's sake. When they arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. So God acted upon what he said he would do, and he did so. He displayed the sign, and he said, this is what it is. He's not going to come. <laughs> He's not going to be here. That's part of the sign. And part of the sign also was, you're going to eat undisturbed. You're going to eat the following year undisturbed. The third year, you're going to plant, just like you always have. You're going to go back to normal life, at least for a while. Then it ends with this uh, kind of... Uh, very descriptive thing that happened. What we're about to read historically, uh, where we're at in history, it's about 701 B.C. 20 years, 18 to 20 years later is when this event actually happened. So we know that Sennacherib, he lived on as king for a few more years, and he actually had written down some uh, things that supposedly went out and did some more wars, but he never tried to return back to Jerusalem. I wouldn't either if I was a king and lost 185,000 in one night without anybody battling. He might have learned his lesson, but I don't think he did. Because um, it says here, and it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrok, his god, a false god, a demon god, an idol, stone, wood, or something, precious metal. He was killed by his own sons, murdered with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. We know this in history because this is what happened. It's recorded for us. What do we make about all these things? Well, we know this, that God is the living God. Do we believe that? Do we know that? We have a God who is, we can take when we're threatened, we can take in our prayer time and lay it out before Him. God, look, look and see. I've mentioned it before from here, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Sometimes I'll pull up my phone and pull up an article in some news source and say, look, Lord, look what these people are doing. Look what's going on. Don't, don't look away from the look, look and see. How can this thing happen? 
How can all these perversions go on? And how can, how can all these things be done that are harming children? I do that because I've read this story so many times and I go, look God, I know that you see and I know that you know, but I'm reminding you, please do something. Please do something. Because it's the kids. And we know what's going to happen to them. We know what it says that's better for them. But this is what we know, that God is the God who sees and who hears and who acts. And we should be actively pursuing Him in prayer. That's why prayer is so important. Hezekiah showed what we should do. He's a king and he humbled himself. He's a king who personally had a relationship with God. And he knew that he could go to Him personally. But he also employed the church, if you will, by employing Isaiah and saying, intercede on our behalf. Because we have an intercessor. And our intercessor is Jesus himself. Remember what he said last week, what we talked about last week, that he said that um, there was a time when the disciples would ask the Father. And he says, you don't have to go through anybody. You can go directly to the Father. Up until now you didn't, but now you can. And you can just ask in my name and it'll be done. That's what's so important about this. Hezekiah shows us that this is the model. This is what God um, wants us to do. He wants us to trust Him and to come to the throne room of grace with confidence. Confidence in what? That He hears, that He sees, that He acts. Also, confidence in this. We're welcome to come. He bids us come. He wants us there. We should spend as much time there as possible. That's what we should learn out of this story. God didn't send down, you know, fiery wrath from heaven, although that would have been cool. He sent an angel who was probably invisible, whatever this angel of, probably the same angel of death that killed the firstborn of Egypt. It was probably the same one. Very likely, God uses everything at His, at his hands that He wills to make the ends of the things that He has decreed. He'll make it come to pass. He is the one who can do all of these things. I've got a lot more notes, but I, I don't want to... We're pressed for time, so... Uh, I want to finish with this. God wants us to pray. It's one of our tools. It's not just one of our tools, it's one of our weapons. And when we go to God in faith, He knows and He hears. We have to know that He does hear. We have to know that He does see. And that's the question. Do you believe it? Do you believe that He does? Do you know that He does hear? Here we have written throughout the, old, the whole Testament, the Old and the New, the entire Bible of God working out exactly what He says He would. And if we'll just trust Him, it may not be in our timing, it may not be the way that we think, but it is what God has given us. In the mocking of the true and living God, there is a certainty of death. That's why we don't mock God. The contrast between the two kings is a lesson for us. Uh, McLaren's exposition says this, But the great lesson of that death is the same as that of the other king's deliverance. 
So we're the king of Assyria versus the king of Israel or Judah. Hezekiah went to the house of the Lord and found him a very pleasant help in trouble. Sennacherib was slain in the house of his God, his false God, who couldn't act or see, who was no God at all. The two pictures of the worshipers and their fates are symbolic of the meaning of the whole story. Sennacherib had dared Jehovah, or Yahweh, to try his strength against him and his deities. Challenge was accepted. God said, challenge, it's on. And the bloody corpse before the idol that could not help preaches a ghastly sermon on the text. They that make uh, them, the idols, are like unto them. They're dumb. They're stupid. They can't speak. They can't see. They can't hear. They are not living. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help. He is their shield. Seek Him. Do you know Him? Have you been forgiven? Those who are watching online, have you been born again? That is the ultimate thing. That's the ultimate question. That's the question that you have to answer. Have you been born again? Do you know that you're a sinner and that you need to be saved? Do you know that you need to be forgiven? He's the one who can do it. God sent His one and only Son to pay that price on the cross. Have you been born again? Or will you suffer the fate of Sennacherib and die before your imaginary God and suffer all eternity for it? It's a grim thought, but that's what's going to happen to billions upon billions, if not trillions, of people. They will spend eternity in hell. And this is just the beginning. The lake of fire is yet to come. And that's where all eternity will be spent for those who mock at God and who will not receive Him. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can save me. His very name is salvation. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and grace and mercy. Thank You for these stories that tell of what, what has taken place. And it reminds us that You are the God who is sovereign over all things. And that what You have decreed, although we may not be aware of it, will come to pass just exactly as You have planned it. For you have planned all of these things. And in your word it's said that, that our days are numbered. That you know the number of them. Even before we're born. Even before we're formed in the womb. You know them. And you're intimately knowledgeable of all of these things and more. And so we thank you Lord. That we can personally know you. That we can corporately worship you. That we can seek you in prayer and seek your face. And when we do, honestly, humbly, and sincerely, we'll find a God who is great, who's mighty, wonderful, glorious, and above all things, who is holy and righteous and perfect in all your ways. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We pray now have your way over us, Lord, for those who maybe have never given their life to you, that they would, that they would trust you that they would glorify your name and that the angels would rejoice 
We praise you, we thank you, we bless you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.